Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is freelance journalist and author Tom Dunkel. Tom has been a regular contributor to The Washington Post magazine for the past 20 years and has also contributed articles for The New York Times magazine, Sports Illustrated, and Smithsonian, to name a few. In 2013, Tom published his first book, Colorblind, the forgotten team that broke baseball's color line, which drew rave reviews from many of America's most prestigious newspapers and book reviewers. Three weeks ago, Tom released his latest book, White Knights in the Black Orchestra, the extraordinary story of the Germans who resisted Hitler, which also is drawing rave reviews from America's most elite book reviewers and newspapers. Tom, welcome to the show. It's a great honor and privilege to have you here. Uh, what led you to write about uh, those Germans who resisted Adolf Hitler? What led you to that topic? Well, thank you for having me, Matthew. Uh, well, it was a long and winding road, as, as often happens with, with authors and projects. I first got put onto this about 20 years ago, I had a friend here in Washington, D.C., by the name of Kristen Fellows, who was a producer, associate producer on a documentary uh, crew at that time that was doing a biography, I think, uh, rather a documentary for, I believe it was North Carolina Public Television on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And that was the first I had heard of Bonhoeffer as a German theologian active in the resistance. And I got interested at that point and actually put together a proposal to do a, a biography on Bonhoeffer and then as things often happen uh, with serendipity or happenstance I had a, a job offer to join the Baltimore Sun as a feature writer so I tabled the Bonhoeffer project uh, stayed at the Sun for about four years and when I left the Sun I uh, by happenstance stumbled on an idea about that baseball book you, you mentioned so I did that book and then uh, took a little foray into a, try to help somebody, a, a criminal justice activist with a memoir. And that sort of stalled for about two years. And I said, I got to get back to my own full-time work. So I pulled the Bonhoeffer proposal out of my files. And I decided I wanted to, to do something more in what my background is, which is narrative nonfiction, and do more of a, I want to look at Bonhoeffer his place within the, the sort of the ensemble of actors that he was involved with in the resistance. And even as I embarked on the project, uh, it, it evolved beyond my original vision. I was originally going to approach this book beginning in 1939. And I found as I was writing, I was flashing back too much to the early Nazi years, because I, as I wrote this, I started to realize, you know, we're approaching from when when Hitler was first active politically, meaning in the in the early 1920s, we're approaching 100 years out on this. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know uh, the story of how he came to power, and I thought, well, I can't really present what was going on with some of these resistors without fully presenting some context in terms of what motivated them to do what they they did and how a lot of them got involved on that path of resistance. So I wound the book back to uh, the fall of 1931. I began about eight years earlier. And then as I was reporting as 
as happens in whether it's a, a magazine article or a book, you can't stay too wedded to your your premise because your research is going to take you off in in different directions. And it's funny how certain protagonists, certain people, will almost just figuratively elbow their way into a book. And there was a couple of people who were not part of my original uh, conception of this book who sort of stepped to the fore and became, became more important to me. And there was several people that fell into that category. And, and as you probably know, this is, there's a lot going on in this book, both the backdrop of the history and also there's a lot of characters trafficking in and out around a central core of characters. And I'll give you an example of one of the people I came across who I had not heard of before. I can't even remember how I came upon Harold Polchow, but he was a pastor at one of the prisons in Berlin, at Table Prison. And he, his first day on the job was actually April 1st, 1933. And coincidentally, that was the day of the Jewish boycott in, in Germany, particularly in Berlin which was one of the first sort of inkling of, a, of an organized uh, attack on the, on the Jewish population in, in Germany. And his ministry, <laughs> his ministry tracked with the development of, of the Nazi regime, and it took a very dark turn as it evolved into a lot of pastoral counseling of, of people on the night before their executions. Yeah. And it, it was stunning to me. In fact, uh, Polsha mentioned that he actually lost count after a while of how many people he spent those last hours with, and he lost count at around a thousand people. Yep. And he witnessed a number of those executions. And he himself was outside of his prison work was active in the ground level resistance group himself but the the, the fact that Paltrow did not go go mad or kill himself uh, was extraordinary to me and he became sort of step forward as a second tier character um, in this book and there was a there was a consul officer at the American embassy by the name of, uh, of uh, Geist, who Raymond Geist became increasingly important for certain years leading up, because Geist was in Berlin for about 11 years, 29 up to 39, shortly after the, uh, the start of the war with the invasion of Poland. And he had a, a real ground level eyewitness look at this, both from what politically was going on in Germany, but also part of Guy's job evolved into trying to get visas and get people out of the country. And he was doing some of this underhanded through contacts with, with people in the Nazi regime who didn't particularly want to deal with, whether it was Hermann Goering or uh, uh, the police chief uh, Helpsdorf in, in Berlin. And those, you know, he traffics in that certain part of the book. They also wanted to try it was interesting. I thought it was important along the way 
to get a cut, and I didn't do it deliberately, but I was glad to stumble on both Raymond Geist and Dorothy Thompson, who was a, a freelance journalist over there in the early, in the 33 years, early uh, months of the Nazi regime, to get some American voices in, in the book, because I thought that might make German history a little bit more, a little bit more approachable to American audience. I don't know. I just thought we we sometimes tend to compartmentalize what went on in in, in Germany, and uh, so I wanted to include a cast of characters that included some of those voices above and beyond sort of the core four or five people that I was writing about. Now, I, I when reading going through your book, I, I see references made to Alan Welsh Dulles, you know, and OSS and all that. What, besides trying to assassinate Hitler, were there other forms of resistance against the Nazis? Was there, well, those who were in the resistance, were there any attempts to communicate or cooperate with allied intelligence and agencies in America or Great Britain? Uh, yes, there were. The, the parenthetical to that is that the, one of the difficulties of any resistance, but particularly the resistance in Nazi Germany, was intercommunication between any of those groups. Uh, there was not a real unified resistance because it was just it was just too dangerous. So you had pockets of resistance. And the main and most um, serious resistance threat to the government came from within because there, there was not going to be anything that significant that could have happened without some sort of uh, complicity of the military. And one of the things I learned, I knew there was some outreach uh, to the Allies. I was surprised at how many overtures were made, particularly to, to the Brits, to the British government. But there was some at the OSS. I mean, Dulles uh, had a very uh, interesting uh, close, uh, closer hearing on Capitol Hill after the war. And uh, Wilhelm Canaris was, as you uh, probably know, an admiral in the Navy who was head of German overseas military intelligence. And he's a very complicated character. Um, you know, people try to figure out what was going on in Canaris' head during the war and, and have driven themselves crazy. He had a man of torn allegiances and torn loyalties, but there is no question that he was putting his own life at risk. In fact, within the Abwehr, in the in headquarters, he, he had about 30 or 40 anti-Nazi collaborators that he was, that he was providing cover for. And during the war, there were several times when Canaris was trying to make, make contact with um, OSS, you know, the U.S. Uh, Overseas Strategic Services during the war. But in, in Dulles's testimony after the war, he talked about how he was in contact with Canaris and his second-in-command, Hans Oster, and they were leaking to him details of the V1 and V2 uh, rocket programs in Germany. And Dulles was of a mind that that leaked information made it possible for them to do a number of air attacks on 
and I may be pronouncing it wrong, Penamunde was the... Uh, yeah, Penamund. Yeah, the, uh, the research laboratory, but he thought that delayed the development of the V1 and V2 rocket program. I, I can't recall off the top of my head whether he said for six months or nine months, but during the course of that war, that's definitely <laughs> of strategic value when you delay a rocket program that long. So there was, and Canaris, Canaris had made some other contacts. He tried to, uh, in fact, he made a personal contact in Istanbul with George Earl, who was um, kind of the informal uh, ambassador to the Balkans. Uh, and he was, um, he talked to Earl, the, 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 one of the great sort of conundrums on both sides of the equation of, of, the, of the contact between the Germans and the Allies was was the trust factor. And on the German side, the resistance, the resistors and conspirators were, again, it was very important to them to get as much of a military component to this as they could. And they knew that German generals were not going to take part in any effort to overthrow Hitler if they're, if the Allies were going to just uh, enact an onerous peace agreement like they did after World War One, So they were looking for some sort of assurances from the Allies that it wouldn't be an unconditional surrender situation, which is what Roosevelt and Churchill uh, were talking about. Of course, on the Allies side, they're wondering, well, can we exactly trust these guys that we know what they were doing? Are they actually going to uh, kill Hitler, then will they assassinate Hitler, and why don't they just do it <laughs> and we'll see what we do. So there was that, in any scenario like that, you're, you're not going to be able to have a, a perfect, you know, plot line without risk. And it, it was sort of that crazy little bit of a standoff between both sides in, in terms of the trust. And, and assurances of as the German resistance was reaching out. And, and as you know from the book, uh, one of the conduits was, uh, was Pope Pius XII, who was acting as, a, as an intermediary. And they were discussing these hypothetical uh, peace plan outlines. And, uh, you know, from the from the German side, they made some interesting concessions. One of them, at one point, they were even talking about Germany participating in a kind of pan-European military force, uh, which was quite interesting. And then also, uh, certainly, the the main guarantee that the Allies were looking for was the promise that, that there would not be a totalitarian government replacing uh, the Nazi government, which is certainly what the conspirators were looking for. But... Um, you know, how do you make, how do you make guarantees on that? But it was that whole uneasy standoff and sort of stare down between both sides. So in a sense, what you're stating is uh, basically on a what if scenario, if, Stau if Stauffenberg had succeeded in killing Hitler and the coup had succeeded and they had they were ousted out the Nazis, the, the, this new government, you know, 
would, would have tried for a separate peace with the Americans and British, because at the time of the bomb explosion, the Russians were still on the Vistula River in Poland. They hadn't yeah. really crossed the Oder yet. And the Americans were still in France, but basically they were seeking a separate peace with the Anglo-Americans. Well, basically not with the Russians. Is that was was that the, the thought well, in their mind? That's because that was that's I don't know of them having any significant pipeline to the Russian government. Although the British did express a a, a couple of times that they had had a. Um, you know, they had had a treaty agreement with, with Russia, signed a treaty agreement with Russia not to pursue separate peace plans. Uh, and the Brits, you know, conveyed that at, at certain times that um, uh, they could not, they had to proceed cautiously on this because it was sort of a unilateral situation. They weren't sure how the Russians were. So I don't think they were looking for a separate peace agreement. They were looking for any kind of peace guarantee that they could get Again, the big fear with the peace terms having been so onerous after World War One and all the subsequent um, economic distress that caused in Germany, um, they were looking, and how do you get guarantees on this, but they were looking for some sort of guarantee that there would not be that kind of retribution this time around. Okay. And the German generals certainly do commit an act of treason against your government, regardless of how oppressive and evil that government is, it's a, it's a tough step to take. And also keeping in mind with the, and it, my understanding is, is it dates back to the Teutonic law, this notion of, and I don't know if, if you speak German, Sippenhaft, which is which is basically that not just the person who commits a crime can be considered guilty of that crime, all, all of that person's extended family and relatives will be considered guilty as well. So the retribution that would be taken against one's entire family um, certainly has a sobering effect on, on taking a risk like that. And how far out on that limb do you go if you're not going to have some insurances that that the coup you're attempting has a pretty good chance of succeeding. And, uh, you know, during the course of research and writing this, um, so many people will, act uh, friends of mine, as, as I was working on the book, would articulate the notion that, well, why didn't, why didn't they just, you know, somebody just shoot Hitler? And why were they, but it's much more, complicated in that on the ground level <laughs> and I gained a little bit more appreciation of what it was like for these people of good hearts and good minds to be operating and trying to navigate that political military and personal situation and, and it, it was almost like they were in a box canyon <laughs> with no good way out and keeping in mind how little you had to do to be executed in Germany as a traitor. And yet they were still pressing forward in what ways they could to try to, to stop all the madness. Please tell our, Tom, please tell our listeners, where can they find this book? 
they will. They, they can find the book everywhere at their better bookstores and certainly uh, online at all at all the retailers, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Indie Books. Um, there's I'm going to post uh, a couple of sample chapters on my website and then also the the writer's website literary hub has an excerpt that has been up for about i think about two weeks now and it, it is still up uh so if they want to take the book on a test drive they are certainly welcome to do that tom what is your next book project and when can we expect its release i don't have an answer for you on that yet matthew I, i've got a couple of ideas on I'm kicking around um, related to uh, both of them coincidentally involved involved murders. I have not selected one yet. This was a really unusual project for me. I've been writing for a long time. <laughs> and as I expanded the scope of the book as I got into it, um, I counted. I, I took about 13 days off in four years, four, four and a half years. Wow. And at some point, it was somewhat damaging to my health. I mean, my, oh my feet went numb, my hands went numb. <laughs> I had to go to the emergency room one night because I out of just dehydration and exhaustion. Ouch. So uh, while I'm researching these these couple of other books ideas, one of my main goals was to get back on a uh, on a semi-normal rest sleep cycle. Uh, this was the ultimate uh, the ultimate deadline situation for a writer. Wow. So, Tom, whenever I ask an, an an author, whenever I interview an author, I always ask the standard question: When you were growing up, who were your favorite authors? And of those favorite authors, did any of them inspire you to become an author and writer in your own right? Yeah, I could be a, a terrible example of this in in, in, a, in a couple of instances. I'm one of those working writers who did not work on my high school newspaper, who did not work on my college newspaper and evolved into a writing career uh, a little bit later. I went to, uh, I was always taking, I was good in English classes and I always enjoyed writing, but I just didn't think of it as a career. And I actually uh, was working in film production in New York City when I got out of college uh, with a documentary filmmaker, but I found I enjoyed the writing side of the film business more. So I went to NYU graduate school when I was, uh, gosh, I was 30 when I entered graduate school and then started selling my class assignments. So is that, that was at the point where I really started paying attention uh, to writers. Certainly in college, I was turned on by a professor to um, Henry David Thoreau and Thoreau's journals, I still go back and read on occasion. He was, he was a terrific writer. And, uh, and Emerson and also, believe it or not, Carl Sandberg. But as I got to, more into segueing into journalism, I, I think John McPhee would be one of the people that was influential in terms of um, how you approach um, narrative nonfiction writing. And uh, I actually had a chance, uh, this was some years ago, I actually profiled McPhee, uh, which is one of the rare times that he not that he's reclusive, but John is more about doing work than promoting John. Yeah. So I got a chance to spend some time there, but I would say certainly, uh, certainly McPhee. Okay. 
Tom, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the show. And when you do come up with your next book idea, please let me know. I'd love to have you on the show again, okay? I'd be happy to. And before I go, can I just mention one thing to you? Sure. Uh, that in the course of this this project, which took longer than my – I wound up missing about three deadlines on this book because I expanded the scope. But one organization that somewhat un, unbeknownst to them came to my rescue was the uh, National Endowment of Humanities. Yeah. I managed to get a, a year-long grant from them at a point where my uh, research was was spilling far and wide, and that they really that was enormously helpful to me. So I, I feel obligated to mention NEH and their uh, the public scholar program that they do, and their support for working writers is just invaluable. Thank you very much, Tom, and uh, good luck in all your endeavors. Thank you much, Mac. Good talking to you. Okay, take you. Bye bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing author Andrew Noon. And this is just a reminder to all my listeners out there that my my book, Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, is on sale at Amazon. Just type in my name, Matthew Dibiaz, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-I-B-I-A-S-E, or just type in the title, Lords of the Gridiron 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches, and you'll find the book at Amazon. It's on sale at 30% off, and it will remain on sale until after Super Bowl 57 is played. Thank you and good night.